Look, today's kind of a momentous day. It's a bit of a, a bittersweet moment for me. Uh, today is the final sermon in our Revelation series. I know, I know, we have done it. There are t- there's a few tears of sadness and a lot of joys of exultation being like, thank God, something else. Um, honestly, when I was prepping for this week, um, this, is the, um, this is one of the primary commentaries I've been working through. Uh, if you've seen a guy named Keister reference, it's this book. And uh, on Thursday, I was sitting back there at the tables, right? I was reading through it, reading through his commentary on these very last passages. And I got down to his very last page of content, right here. I read the last words, and then I closed the book. And I'm not even kidding, I felt like a deep, profound sadness in my heart. I was like, you know, the only, I was saying to a few people, the only thing I can compare it to is the feeling that I had when I first finished the Harry Potter series. Like, when I got to the end of book seven, and I felt accomplished because I'd read it all, but I was a little bit sad because I felt like I'd lost some friends. You know that feeling? That's how I feel. Like, I'm laying down Keister's commentary for the last time. Actually, I'm really glad to not be lugging around. That thing is way too big and way too heavy. It's really good. If you want some light reading for your summer holidays, you're welcome to borrow it. Anyone? Keister on the beach? Keister on... Nope. Um, Honestly, it's been a surreal journey um, going through this book. And today we're going to try and wrap it all up and pull it all together and kind of communicate what it means for us as a church. This is going to be kind of a little bit looking ahead towards what God has called us towards. But with that... I want us to listen to the very last bit of text together. And when we've done this, it means that we as a church will have listened to the entire book together, which I think is really cool. So for this very last time, as we come to the very end of Revelation, we come to the very end of our Bibles. This is the last canonical words that were written. This is it. You guys ready? Should we finish this together? Can we do it? For the very last time, Let's listen to the revelation. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. There it is. You did it. It's the final, final words of Scripture. The end of a very, very long journey. The end of a very challenging book. Still, historically, this has been one of the most difficult books that has tripped people up and led them down crazy side alleys, yet it has also toppled empires because of its powerful message, the challenge that it gives to each and every one of us. So there's not, we're not going to go through lots of detail. That end bit is pretty self-explanatory, yay. Keep the words of this. There's this bit here, verses 6 and 7, it says, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, he sent his angel to sow his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the scroll because the time is near. Now, a little fun fact for you with like apocalyptic literature, because Revelation is an apocalyptic book. It's a genre of, of literature. And there's other books that are written in this way. What's interesting is at the end of lots of them, there's this thing of like, what's written in the scroll and what do you do with it? But in almost all of the other apocalyptic books, it says, seal up what is written. Bind it together and hold it secret for the appointed time when it's meant to be read. Right? That's the style that most of these other apocalyptic books say. Revelation is the complete opposite. It's open this thing up so everybody can hear it so that we can listen to the message that it brings us. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this book is because I think this verse is the exact opposite of what most of us experience. 
Revelation is not a book that is opened up to us. It's closed and confusing, so we never look at it, right? And so we don't actually listen to the words or keep the words of this prophecy because we can't understand them. We can't interact with them. And one of my hopes of this series is that if we as a church can grab one of the most difficult books of the Bible, my hope was that we begin to make it accessible, that we make something that was probably too hard or too confusing, something that you can listen to and grapple with. And if I'm honest, I don't know if you found this, but in my humble opinion, the book of Revelation, these incredible words, I think is one of the most relevant, contemporary, and needed books for our church today. It's not a book that just has us wait for pie in the sky, maybe 50 years from now, China and Russia will get into a fight. It's challenging us to live faithfully now. And as we've gone on that journey, I hope we've seen that. I mean, the book starts with a message to seven very real churches, not hypothetical sketches, not uh, representatives of different times through the year, seven real groups of people who were trying to follow Jesus in the midst of one of the most oppressive cultures they had ever seen. They find themselves surrounded by Rome. And everything in them is pulling them away to this faithful walk of Jesus and telling them it'll be just easier if you act like the Romans do. When in Rome, do as the Romans. And for some of these churches, man, they were having a hard time. They were oppressed. Some of them were poor. They were losing their jobs. They were being pulled before the courts. In some churches, they were being killed on the streets because they would not give in to Rome. Other churches, complete opposite story, Laodicea was doing great. They'd fit really well into Roman culture. They were pretty wealthy. They were upwardly mobile. Things were working fine. But to both of these churches, Christ comes and tells them about a different way of living. For those who are oppressed, it's a message of hope. Your oppressors will not win forever. And for those who are comfortable, it is a message of challenge. Do not live according to the ways of this world, but follow me. Oh, man, if that doesn't resonate with us today, how do we be in the world but not of it is I think one of the most relevant questions we face. And how do we do that in a context where it's not always easy, when we find difficulty, when church doesn't look happy and clappy and victory and we feel like the martyrs? Man, we can see ourselves in these seven churches and the beautiful message of that is Jesus walks in the midst of them. They are not alone. He walks amongst his lampstands. We see pictures of this heavenly throne room. We see God, do you remember those passages? God sitting on a throne surrounded by 24 elders with all the creatures of earth gathering in a shout of praise. What they're doing is this is an incredible picture that's mocking the Roman Senate. This is the, the Senate gathered themselves, the Roman Colosseums and the, the government buildings were the greatest wonders the world had ever seen. The authority of Rome was unheard of unchecked. It was the pinnacle of human civilization. And John says, you see that? That is trash compared to who our God is. And when everything else feels like it's in control, God is still on the throne. And what's even better is you see a picture of Jesus. We think, is God on the, on the throne? Is he just going to be like Caesar? Is he just going to wield power? Is he going to dominate like everyone else? Is God the kind of God who forces his way upon the world with power? We hear them calling to Jesus. You hear a lamb or a lion roaring with power, a lion fearsome that could devour its enemies. But when John turns and sees, he sees a lamb with its throat cut. Jesus conquers, not the way Caesar does. God wins us over through self-sacrificial love. Through laying down our lives, the world will be overturned. 
We have the visions of the seals and the trumpets, which are terrifying, right? You have locusts and beasts and hailstorms and all these crazy things. But what we found is in this message is it's challenging the very things that Rome was based upon. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are challenging the very things Rome felt secure about. Their military might, their ability to conquer, their ability to use their wealth and their power to maintain dominion over the world. What God is saying is Rome looks undefeatable and it looks like you're never going to beat her. It looks like you're never going to make a difference because you're too small, you're too insignificant, and the churches would have felt hopeless. But God says, do you know what? The foundations that hold Rome up are fragile. She can fall so easily. Do not give in to her promises. Stand firm. You have the question of the martyrs. When the martyrs ask, I think, the most relatable question in the entirety of Scripture, God, how long are you going to wait till you do something? I don't know a person in this room who hasn't asked that question at least once. God, you promised to be good, you promised to be faithful, you promised to be in control, yet look at what's happening. And the martyrs cry out with raw, vulgar, authentic prayers of anger at God, saying, God, how long will you wait? But in classic revelation form, God doesn't give them a pat answer because there are no pat answers to deal with the hurt that we carry. Instead, he tells them to hold on, for I am coming. And then he promises them that their sacrifice will not be in vain, but their laying down their lives will itself be a testimony that will challenge the power of Rome and unleash a new kingdom. And we see that throughout the history of the church. Within 200 short years after this is written, Christianity goes from being this small minority oppressed thing to literally subverting and flipping over the Roman Empire through the blood of martyrs. In chapters 12 and 13, we're introduced to the Earth's destroyers, this dragon that lies behind all things. See, we look around and we think that, yeah, there's some corruption in this country, and yep, that world leader is corrupt, but Revelation is trying to say, no, the problem that we face is not localized into one person. There's a challenge that's been existing since the dawn of time. There's a force of evil that is trying to corrupt God's good creation. We see the beast, which is this representation of the empire of Rome that devours and consumes everything around it. We see this false prophet, which is trying to give everyone's allegiance to the beast, saying, no, Caesar is all there is. The world is all there is. Just follow, the, follow Rome, you'll be fine. And we're introduced to Babylon, this great city of consumption. These challenges that our world faced are not simple. They're complex. But immediately after that, we have these vision of bowls where these plagues are poured out. But when we, at first, they look horrifying. But when you look closer, what you actually find is they begin to mimic the pattern of the Exodus. They reference the, 12, the 10 plagues that came across Egypt that renewed the small, poor, oppressed people in Israel and brought them out to a whole new world that took them out of Egypt and set them up in the promised land to be a new people. What we see in Revelation is God is doing that again. Our world may not feel like we can conquer it. We may not be able to come above it. We may not be able to move beyond it. But God says, I'm leading a new exodus for all who call on my name to give you the freedom that you so desperately cry for. That's God's story. And then after that, the destroyers of the earth are destroyed one by one. Babylon falls in one hour. Rome was the eternal city that was never going to fade. In Revelation, she's fallen in one hour. 
the beast and the prophet equally are taken away by Christ as he comes on a white horse. Again, not through power. He comes bloody, but the blood is his own. He comes with a sword, but the sword comes out of his mouth. It's the words that he speaks that tears down the work of the evil one. And then finally, the dragon and even death itself is cast into this lake of fire where it can hurt us no more. And in that moment, we all stand before God's throne and there's this grand truth-telling so that all the victims, all of us who have been abused, who have been hurt, who live under lies and oppression, there is a moment where the truth will come out for us. The truth will be spoken and there will be freedom. And then finally, there's a new Jerusalem that's promised. A way of living, a way of being that is so different from the world that we live in. Our world is based on consumption and power. Whoever holds the power and the money gets to dictate how things work. And we, the little peons at the bottom, are just trying to make ourselves move up the top as quick as we can. Life is this never-ending steam of buy more, have more, do more, go up, buy more, have more, do more. And then we get our self-worth. Revelation says there is another way to live. That is not the only gospel you need to believe. There's another city. If Babylon was based on consuming and using, Jerusalem is based on giving, generosity. Babylon was based on war and power. In Jerusalem, there is peace, true peace. In Babylon, we're all separated from one another, trying to make it on top. In Jerusalem, we are all brought together as one, a new family with God as all of our fathers. Oh, what a message. Keister, I have to quote him one last time, don't I? Like one more time. Cut me some slack. Keister, summing up this whole book is he says, the grim portrayal of the ungodly is designed to repel listeners. While the invitation to come to the water of life generates a desire, generates a desire to be included among the faithful. For John's persecuted readers, the warnings and promises are a call to remain faithful in the face of opposition. For the other readers who are complacent and accommodate the polytheistic practices, so worshiping other gods and idolatry, they are called to repent and wash their robes. But in both cases, the desired outcome is the same. Perseverance in faith. Do not give up. Discover what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. What is revelation? It's the reason we've called it this. What is that story? That's the gospel. That's what we're all here for. That's all we have to offer you is this story of what God is doing in our world and on our earth. It's so important. It's all we have. But granted, you could still be like, but Colin, why did we have to do this book? This was really hard. <laughs> there are four other gospels that are perfectly fine without us having to spend nine months slogging through this beast, right? That's a fair question to ask. And it's here that I want us to, to, to recognize, I think, what God's done in us in the, in the last nine months as we've done this. And for me, it's been about foundations. We are a brand new church. We are still trying to figure out who God is calling us to be. We still hardly know each other, really. Even if you're here for the first time today, which if you're here for the first time today, God bless you, this may be terrifying. We love you, we're not that weird, right? But there's a reason we're still trying to build the foundations of who we are and how are we gonna follow Jesus together. And there's some foundations that I'm not sure if you're aware of, but I think we've been building deep into that will serve us. And the first one is a foundation of scripture. I think it's incredibly significant that we have listened to this entire book. I've not just preached it. 
I've not just told you about it, we have listened to it. We've taken a lot of time. If you collect up all this time to read for the entire book of Revelation on that audio, I think it's about two and a half hours. Together, we have sat for two and a half hours to listen to scripture being read. I think, um, often scripture is kind of a tricky thing in churches, right? I think scripture, if we're not careful, scripture is like the awkward relative at family gatherings where we know it's really important for them to be there, but we're not too keen on how much we interact with it or not because it's kind of awkward and boring sometimes, right? Like, I know I shouldn't say that I'm a pastor, right? I'm supposed to love Bible. You're all Christians. You all love it too, right? Right? Yeah, totally. Often that's the case because we feel like scripture can be outdated. Like, uh, sometimes we can feel like, well, I guess we just have to use this to talk about the things that really matter, right? Or one of the things that I often hear um, from people is they'll say, look, yeah, scripture, it's all good, getting our doctrine set up. Yeah, I guess that's important, but we got to find something that's relevant for today. The world brings lots of challenges to the church. There are lots of valid critiques that are coming from outside these four walls, and we need to deal with them. We need to deal with them, and I hear that. But to me, I think what Revelation has shown us is that the greatest critique of the church, it doesn't come from outside the walls. It comes from here. The greatest challenge to our church models and the way we are and whether we're relevant doesn't come necessarily from Twitter. It comes from Jesus. If we read those seven letters, you don't come out of them unscathed. No one does. You read this book and you realize, flip, I'm complacent, I'm comfortable, I'm apathetic, I don't really want to make any hard sacrifices, and I wanted everything to be about me. Thanks, Jesus. And so for me, it's so important that we as a church ground ourselves in Scripture. Not because we're trying to be legalistic and beat ourselves over the head with it, but because I genuinely think that in our world where we are constantly confused of what to believe, which blog do you read, which story do you hear, what do you believe is true, grounding ourselves in this story, Scripture has a way of cutting through all of the noise and helping us to hear the words of Jesus again. And I think if we don't have that as a church, we're stuffed. I've got nothing else than what Jesus seems to be saying through here. I know none of you want to have me be up here just spouting out my good ideas every week, right? I've got three of them, and I'm going to run out in three weeks, all right? So, so you, we sit with Scripture as a community. This is a foundational thing that we have to carry. And it's not just Scripture. We sat with hard Scripture. This wasn't just like, hey, be kind to one another Scripture. This was blood and guts. This was plagues and angels and demons. This year, we dealt with hard things really hard. Revelation is not an easy book, and if anyone says they got through this whole series loving every minute of it, they're liars, because I'm not even that person, right? But I think there's a foundation here that we're building, which is, as a church, I do not want us to be afraid of difficulty. I think so much of our Western life is based around comfort. Um, there are hundreds of businesses that are springing up just to minimize the amount of pain or difficulty in our lives. And if we're not careful, we can allow them to just flood our way through and we go from cushing moment to cushion moment. And then if we're ever uncomfortable or terrified, well, thank God I can just pull out my phone and distract myself with Facebook until the uncomfortable feelings go away, right? And if we're not careful as churches, we begin to build that into an ethos of what matters to us. We want to be a safe church. We want to be a church where you can come and just, you know, have it be there. And I want you to feel loved and I want you to feel accepted but I do not want comfort to be on our top of our priority list. 
It cannot be. And often I know people will ask, but like, oh, but Colin, this is really hard scripture. What about for the people that are having a really hard time who are going through some real difficulties and you're reading these hard scriptures? Do you know what my experience has been? And I've, I've talked with you about this. I've been in your homes and talked with you about this. For those of us who are going through like depression or chronic illness or serious, serious challenges, what, what hurts us in church is not difficulty. It's us covering over of it with a veneer of positivity. That's what gets us because we know life's messy. Our lives are messy. Our lives are bloody. Our lives are complicated. We don't act perfectly all the time. We're angry sometimes and doubtful other times. We're furious and then we're scared all at the same time. Yet somehow we think that in church we have to come and allow scripture to just be this perfect calming presence within us. Life is messy. Scripture is messy. And I think we need to be a church that's not afraid to go there. A church that's not afraid to sit and be like, wow, yep, this is hard. I don't know what to do about that. Let's just sit with that. A church that can sit with doubts, that can sit with scripture that we don't fully understand, that deal with thoughts about God, hell. Man, we had to talk about hell. That's like one of the main rules they teach you at like pastor school is like, hey, when you preach new church, don't major on hell. I'm like, <laughs> here I go. Um, I genuinely think it's incredibly important that we as a church are not afraid of difficulty. We have some hard roads ahead of us. We have some big things that God is calling us to and we will not achieve it if comfort is our number one value. We just won't. And so I think the last thing that I wanted with Revelation, this foundation that it's putting within us is I think a perspective with which to view the life. And I think it comes right here at the end, which is a choice. Revelation finishes with a choice of these two cities, these two ways of living. There's Babylon or there's Jerusalem. And Revelation is saying to us, which one are you going to live in? Where are you going to set up camp? And um, can I be real? Can I be like honest and real? Like kind of awkward. I just said we could be awkward and real. Can I be honest and real? Um, this year, we've done a lot. We've done a lot, a lot. We've, um, if you remember where we were a year ago, like we were still in that other concrete building, still trying to figure out things. Um, we just lost Graham and Grace, some of our great volunteers, and we're trying to figure out where do we go. And uh, we've done a lot. We built up a membership in that time, which is like one of the structures, the skeletons upon which our church is based. We, we shifted buildings from the concrete cathedral to this space, which has so much more room, and it's comfortable, and there's air conditioning that works 20% of the time, and that's nice. Um, <laughs> We have a kid's space that we can hear them shouting through. That's nice. You know, like, it's good. And now we've just recently elected elders. So now we've got this team of elders that are going to help build the church. So this year, we've consolidated all these building blocks that we need to move forward as a church. And now as a church, we have a choice of what kind of church are we going to build? What kind of community will we become? And if I'm honest, my fear is that if I'm not careful, if we're not careful, we are going to build a beautiful church in Babylon. A beautiful church in Babylon. We could have a beautiful, comfortable church. 
I think we could have some really good teaching that's kind of relevant, that helps you feel good on Sundays, that you forget about on Mondays, and then come back on Sundays for your next bit of warm fuzzies. Dan is doing a great job building up the music teams here at the church. We could have some great tunes. We could have some kids, great kids' spaces. I mean, our youth spaces, they could be incredible. We could have just like some really, we could move youth group to Friday nights. You know, the nights when all your kids are going to get up to the naughty things and put them over here so that they go to the Christian space so they don't get up to the naughty things and we can babysit them to make sure they just don't get stuck doing, you know, dumb things. We could build a really great church like that. And we could do that pretty easily. And if I'm honest, I think that would grow. I think it would work really well in Papamoa to our wider community, which is a lot of upwardly mobile middle-class people who are moving into the new houses, right? So we could grow a church really well in that environment. And I think God in his grace would meet us in Babylon. I think he would. Jesus would be faithful to us even if we settled. But I think we have a choice. We can build a church in Babylon, a really good one. Or we as a community can decide to walk away from that and walk towards Jerusalem, into the desert where we don't know what it looks like, where it's going to be hard, where it requires martyrdom and sacrifice and prayer and fasting. That's what we could be. We could be a church that fits really well, that's really comfortable, that helps you in your week while you go and have your good weekends when you need to and then have a good sermon on. We could be that. Or we could become a church that disrupts the narrative in Papamoa, a church that is not based on consumption and having more, a church where our highest priority is to not have a bigger and better house, to have better holidays on the weekends. We could be a church that isn't just excited about hanging out with people liking us, having friends like us on the weekend at our barbecue so that we have good weekends. We could be a church that disrupts that narrative. We could be a church that is willing to sacrifice, where comfort is not our highest priority, but giving is. Where consuming is not the thing we value, but generosity, radical generosity, where we are a giving church. We're a church that gives way beyond our walls. We start investing into things that we may never see returns from. That could be us. You know, we could build a building out there that would be really comfortable in Babylon. We could have great acoustic paneling. It'd be awesome. We would have air conditioning that works 100% of the time with a really good kitchen and some good youth spaces. And it would make us really, really comfortable on Sundays with a cafe that after the sermon, you can go and sip your flat white and it feels really good. Like we could do that. We could do it. Or we could do the hard work to think what kind of building would disrupt the narrative of Babylon and Papamoa and would give people a taste of the new Jerusalem. That when people come into this space, it's not built around just our comfort, but it's built upon radical hospitality where even the people who are hateful and don't look like us and don't live like us come in and know that they belong. We could structure things that way. We could build a building that one of the main things that it does is it gives money, it gives services into the community. That's what we could do. We have a choice of what kind of people we are going to become, and this is what Revelation offers to us. Are we going to stay in Babylon, which we could do? Jesus would meet us there because he's faithful. Or do we embrace sacrifice, witness, truth, community, hard work, and follow Jesus with fear and trembling into the exile to discover a new kind of world. And that starts with us individually. If you wanna know, I know this is big theoretical concepts, but that starts with us individually. If you wanna assess individually how that's working, look over your life and assess how are you spending your money, your time, and what people are you with? 
Babylon prioritizes all the things that we can get. Money we spend on ourselves and we do everything we can to get more, right? How much money is going inward? If you look at your finances, percentage-wise, because I know we all have different means and different structures, but if we want to radically discover what the new Jerusalem looks like, we need to query, is all of our money going on ourselves? And if it is, that looks a whole lot more like Babylon than the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is built upon generosity. And I'm not talking about giving to the church or tithing. I'm talking about, are you putting your money outward beyond yourself into places you're not going to get it back from? Time. This fits into our money, but most of us have incredibly, like, big jobs. I mean, the standard for Papamoa may not be us for here, but the standard narrative for Papamoa and Golden Sands would be most people are working 60 hours because they got to afford that giant mortgage that they just paid for to get this new house, right? So you work 60 hours in order to have the dream of the house that you've always wanted, and then you've got a few discretionary hours in between that, and we want to make sure we do our, our hobbies, and we want to have the fun things over there, and then if we have any last spare minute, we usually spend that consuming content on our phones or our computers or Netflix, right? That's fine. How much time are we spending with God? How much time does prayer fit into our schedule? Of our discretionary time, time that you can do things with, how much time are you spending with God? Or how much time are you spending serving other people? Is all of your time going inwards or is your time going outwards to serve others? And then finally, people. Babylon sees people as a commodity, relationships that we love people like us, to look like people like us so that we can move up to the top. Are we beginning to hang out with people that do not look like us or act like us or talk like us? Are we taking seriously the call of Jesus to love the stranger, to love our enemies, to see the gospel spread upon, among, beyond our ethnic lines? Are we building those relationships? It's hard. I, hands up. I'm crap at it too. I love Babylon. I really do. She's beautiful and she offers me a lot of comfort and security when I'm anxious. But she's also hollowing me out from the inside. And what I've felt as we have come to the end of this book, as we've gone nine months building these foundations and building these structures, I felt a desire in my heart for something more. I don't know if you feel it, but I believe that we as a church could be something else we could embrace sacrifice, generosity, and hospitality in a way that transforms our side of the city. People are desperate for God's kingdom. They just don't know it yet. And if we look and smell and act like Babylon, they will never encounter Jerusalem. But if we take the courageous steps to walk out of comfort and embrace the call of Jesus to the margins and the exile to encounter Jerusalem, I think we have the power to transform our community. And in 10, 15 years, we could have our kids growing up in a community where careers and consumption is not their highest value. We could be shaping our families to be serving one another. Communities that look to love the poor, the lost, the stranger, the weak, the tired, the lonely. That's who we could be. Kim, do you, do you wanna come up and... Um, Do you feel it? I don't know. Honestly, I feel like we're on a tipping point as a church. This is like kind of bigger visionary discussions, and I know if you're a visitor here, this might be a little bit terrifying, but this is what matters to us. We're, we're on a tipping point. We're on the cusp, and we could choose this next year what kind of church that we're going to become. We could build a church in Babylon, and it'd be great, or we could work hard towards something else. Can I encourage you, if, 
If that's you, would you go on that journey with me? Because that's where I want to go. I don't know how to get there, and I don't want to be legalistic or shame anyone else who's not ready. I just want to see Jesus. I want to experience his life in a way that's freed from the calls of Babylon, that real freedom. I want to not be so scared all the time of what people think of me. I want to go on that journey. And I'm ready to give towards that. I'm ready to work hard towards that. I'm ready to sit in difficult conversation towards that. Are you ready to follow the way of Jesus with me? That's what we could be. If that's you, I think, Revelation, my hope is that it's lit a fire underneath us. An utter dissatisfaction with normality and comfort. That we begin to see those things the way Revelation does. We begin to look at that and a whole life based just around comfort. We look at that and go, oh, I don't want that. But with hope, we begin to see a new Jerusalem, a new kingdom, another way of being. I hope there's a dissatisfaction within us because this is the call of the gospel. Jesus does not fit into our lives in a little pocket to help us feel better on Monday. The way of Jesus is radically abandoning ourselves to encounter his life in another place. And he calls every single one of us to go there with him. And at the end of it, there is life. There is community. There's acceptance. This could be a community where you know you are loved even if you've screwed up. Even if you've messed it up, you come back and we will open our arms to you and say, we love you, we're gonna try together. That's what we could be. That's what God is calling us to be. That is the gospel. It's why we've called this series the fifth gospel because it has been about nothing else than trying to follow Jesus faithfully today. And so if you're in a place where you wanna go on that journey, where you're ready to take some of those hard steps, if you feel a sense of strong dissatisfaction with your narrative of life the way it is, and you don't want that same story for your children or your grandchildren, if you feel that, can I invite you to stand with me? Can I invite you to stand? You don't have to. Again, you don't have to. You really don't have to. But if you, if you feel that, if you're in that place, can I invite you to stand? Jesus, as a church, a new young baby church, we stand before you. At the end of this long journey with this incredibly difficult and terrifying and weird book, we stand before you and we hear your call. God, I recognize that so much of our church life is so easy for us to build it around the principles of Babylon, of comfort, of consumption, of power and control. Jesus, right now, I pray for your freedom to come over us as a church. As we finish this book of Revelation, I pray that you would break those shackles off of us right now in Jesus' name. God, unleash in us a holy dissatisfaction. God, our deep desire for comfort, would you break it off right now in Jesus' name. God, our fear, our, our deep insecurity that wonders what everyone else is gonna think that paralyzes us. Jesus, I pray that you would break that off of us right now in Jesus' name. God, the values and the systems that what we make us think what success is, we think it's big numbers, we think it's money, we think it's building. God, those false idols, would you break them off right now in Jesus' name? And would you turn our eyes towards Jerusalem, towards you? 
Would you form us into a different kind of church where comfort is not our priority, but we are willing to face difficulty. We are ready to sit with scripture and hear your voice come to us through it. And we are ready to leave the security of Babylon to find your life in Jerusalem.